He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 12, 2022. Happy birthday, number 213, to Abraham Lincoln. We have a special show in the spirit of America and democracy. These are tough times. Our country is at risk. I want to get us thinking and Feeling good at the start of the show, so we're going to lead off with our troubadour Dave Gunders and his song, Sorry Isn't Good Enough, which is apropos of how we might feel if we get through this about the people who caused this coup and insurrection and the danger that's confronting our society right now. We keep it local here. After Dave Gunders' troubadour with his great song, And it will get you up, off your feet, move around, and then listen to Quentin Young. You know him from Colorado Newsline, former editorial page editor for the Boulder Daily Camera, an accomplished journalist who has turned to the task of confronting this threat to our democracy. He follows the Colorado leaders of the insurrection movement, and that includes Joe Oldman, Randy Corcoran. He had that top 10 list. That was episode 64. And I gave you the bio of Quentin. This time he's back because he's done some important work. He watched the January 6th ProPublica tapes for us. It's time-consuming. It's violent. And he watched it for detail, and he found details. And he wrote a great column about it. He also saw a guy named Sean Smith, who he named in his top 10 of Colorado insurrectionists. Not a lot of people have talked about him, but that was before this week because Tina Peters got arrested and Sean Peters was among those people speaking up for her just the other night. Fast-moving developments, we were all over them, and Sean Smith threatened Jenna Griswold, said that she should be hanged. And then you'll hear that Quentin had contacted Sean Smith this week because he writes about him, thought, hey, I'll get a comment from him. And Sean Smith talked about Quentin Young. And when he talked about Sean Smith back on episode 64. So the battle of ideas is underway. And I think they have bad ideas on their side. I think it's a big lie that President Trump won, as he says, in a landslide. They've been sold the bill of goods, and it's problematic for our society. Where are reasonable Republicans? That's the name of this episode, 83. Reasonable Republicans, where are you? Well, we found one, Matt Soper from House District 54, Delta County, Mesa County, but for the part represented... Uh, by the city of Grand Junction. His jurisdiction overlaps with Lauren Boebert and Tina Peters, Scott McGinnis, 
who I've had on my show. Those are the battle lines, Scott McGinnis, and now I think the Matt Soper types, because this guy is smart, and he's fun, and we talk about law school. He went to three of them, got three different law degrees. Why? Because he wants to be a great legislator from Delta, Colorado, and he has that potential, because you know what? Donald Trump has installed his sycophants. And his functionaries who will do whatever he says at the RNC and in a lot of the Colorado uh, political class and state houses throughout the nation. People loyal to Donald Trump. And that was evident at the start of this Colorado legislative session when they introduced a resolution praising Ron Hanks for going to Washington on January 6th. More about that with Quentin Young. They praised Tina Peters and her wacky Mike Lindell conspiracy theories that Donald Trump also embraces. They did this in Colorado, and three-quarters of the Republican House, thank God they're a minority, but they voted for this resolution. And Matt Soper voted for it, but Matt Soper the next day said, I'm sorry, I should not have voted for that resolution. I'm home with COVID. I didn't read it. I was working off of screens. Give me a break. This is not right. And I accept his apology. Sorry was good enough for that kind of thing. It took guts to stand up and say, my bad, especially as he caught a lot of grief from other Trump-loving Republicans who never take a backward step. That's the hallmark of Trumpism. Never apologize. I like Matt Soper. You'll hear from him, too. So that's the order today. Troubadour Dave Gunders, followed by Quentin Young, followed by Representative Matt Soper. This is a great show. Enjoy. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. 
And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Plus, I'm not a smart man. Holy cow. You know, that was on the air right there. You saying you're not a smart man. But I know what love is. Holy cow. Now you're making fun of people who are a little slower? Is that a movie impression? That's my movie impression. That's Rain Man. No, 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 no. No, it's not Rain Man. It might be. No. What about that one where the guy wants some French fried potatoes? <laughs> Who's that? I, I, you're the guy who's telling me to watch various shows all the time, but I'm going to tell you, you have the greatest song this week. Sorry isn't good enough. It's just perfect for this show. Way to go. You want to know why? Why? First of all, it's the ultimate song of justice. You're going to get yours. You're done, Jack, and your apologies aren't going to be worth really very much given what you've done. Am I right? Yes. I mean, are you not a forgiving type? Uh, this song is a little harsh. Sorry isn't good enough. Who are you? Sorry's a good start, but sometimes people need to go further than sorry. Uh, when what they've done is so egregious, right? Correct. Is that lawyer talk? No. All right. That's musician talk. But I did interview a guy who went to three different law schools this week, Matt Soper, and he's a Republican from House District 54, Delta County, Mesa County, Trump Territory, Bobertville, Tina Petersland. And he voted for that terrible resolution, which was the equivalent of legitimate political discourse, praising Ron Hanks and some other Colorado Cretans, well, I shouldn't say that, Colorado Trump supporters who went to support his big lie, attempt to steal the elections, burnt democracy. They put in that resolution and Matt Soper voted for it, but then the next day, he apologized because he said, you know what? I had COVID. I was home in Delta. I was watching this remotely. I kind of heard what they were talking about, but I didn't see the full text. And now that I've seen it, I reject it. And he came on my air to say that. And I accepted his apology. What do you think about that? I think that's good. I think his apology should be accepted. And, and I think also he had a change of heart. He Perhaps. Prob he probably had a talk with himself. Isn't that what we're going to need? Well, that's what everybody needs to do. Well, not if your heart's in the right place in the first place. Like well, you, to have a troubadour heart like you. It is, but we're all faced with these kinds of things where we sometimes make the wrong call and we have to be big enough to admit it. 
Yes, and then other people have to be big enough to say, I accept that. And That's right. look, if this country's going to get through this, people are going to have to say, hey, I messed up just like I did. I mean, I messed up backing Trump back in the day, and uh, my falling off point was Charlottesville, but maybe somebody else is yesterday. Okay, right. welcome aboard, right? Right. Do you feel the threat? I mean, my God, I know you have a busy week and you're kind of Mr. Oblivious and ignorance is bliss, although ignorance of the law is no defense, unless Merrick Garland is prosecuting Trump. Did you see that he's flushing papers down the toilet? No. Who, who is? Trump. Oh. He's been doing that. Is that what Consistently, he's been doing? Consistently, and he eats it, he rips them up, and there's a law against that. And some people are saying, well... Did anybody tell him? Like, you need to be told that. His ignorance of the laws, no defense. Plus, he was told. Plus, his whole thing. And then he took boxes of classified documents to Mar-a-Lago. There's the guy who ripped Hillary Clinton sure. for her emails. And, yeah. and I fell victim to that. I feel stupid. And I apologized many times for that. And uh, the song, What Were You thinking about was this another bad love affair or what were you writing about no it was something i don't remember what what uh initiated that but it was it was it, this particular song relates to sexual abuse someone who had been uh oh. yes it it does and if you listen to that really that's the subject matter oh man yeah. that gives it another context but i gotta tell you that all your songs are great this one especially so most of you are saying, most of your songs you can dance to, but this one you have to start dancing. So is that a plan? When you create a song, are you thinking about people dancing in front of you as you play it? Um, not, mu not so much anymore. There was a time when that, that was more the case. I'm telling you, this one gets your feet to move, and let's let everybody listen. Sorry Isn't Good Enough by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thanks, Troubadour. Thanks, Craig. No. Oh. 
so tall Feeling big, making others small Afraid you'll have to leave that world behind catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor. Or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others... There's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Gosh, it's an honor to welcome back Quentin Young, Colorado Newsline, former Grand Poobah at the Boulder Daily Camera editorial page. That's a big job. Quentin, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. I will, at the top of this show, have revealed the prior episode when you revealed your colorful history. And I normally don't have people back so frequently, but you have written such fantastic stuff, and I'd like to go over it so that my audience can be up to speed 
because so much happened so fast in this threat to our democracy that you and I care about, it's hard to keep up. For example, the RNC labeling what occurred on January 6th legitimate political discourse. What did you make of that? Well, it's um, it's ludicrous. It just does not reflect the reality. And, and not only does it not reflect the reality, it's not all that hard for anybody who cares to figure out what actually happened on January 6th to go read about it, watch it for themselves, and understand that there's no way that anybody who lives in America and wants to be, to be a good citizen would understand that as legitimate political discourse. It just, it's not what happened. Well, wait a second, Mr. Young. I live in Iowa, and I've had a congressman tell me that they look like tourists, and I did see some footage when people kind of walked through the way I walked through the Capitol, sort of looking around. They didn't all have weapons and no guns, so maybe it was legitimate political discourse. Who are you to say otherwise? Well, um, I just, I don't think many people would want that to be legitimate discourse if it was, say, applied to uh, an issue, say, that is important to people on the left. Um, that's not the way we go about um, addressing our government and seeking redress for grievances. It's uh, It was violent. How do you there, know? How do you know, Quentin Young? You weren't there. Well, um, as I think you uh, yes, I'm throwing that we, softball because you did something that most <laughs> people don't do. I'm throwing that softball for you to hit out. And that's why I'm having right. you on so fast because most of us have busy lives and there's so much video, even in cases of mine with body cams and all the recording devices, somebody who would be nuts enough to take the time to watch all that video so they could feel like they were really there. It's not just video. There's audio, too. That's right. Who would let do me, that sort of thing? Let, Quentin, me, yeah? let, me swing, let me swing at this softball at this moment and tell, and tell you and describe to you what um, I spent many hours doing over the last couple of weeks. So um, ProPublica um, did all Americans a favor by compiling over 500 videos that were taken that were made by rioters themselves on January 6th at the Capitol. And anybody who wants to, to do it can go watch those videos um, as they were published by ProPublica. Now, these, these particular videos were um, made by people who were posting them to Parler, the social media site. And um, I would not recommend to anybody in the world to do what I did, which was to watch every single minute of every one of those videos on the site. I mean, you can go in there and kind of – you don't have to do much sampling to uh, get the – start to get the impressions that I did and which I wrote about. And you uh, supplied but, great hyperlinks. So if anybody wonders what you're talking about with that one kind of religious flag, I just clicked on it and there it was in a, in a video. And your column is wonderful in that regard. And I don't recommend anybody brain damage themselves watching 
cops get brain damaged by people swinging flagpoles into their heads. That's gruesome. But thank you, Quentin, for doing it for us and writing it and synthesizing what you found. And it was pretty profound because tell everybody what you saw and and what you think the meaning is. Yeah. Um, So I, I set out not to, like, subject myself to just you know hours of, of violence that's that was not my purpose i had a very specific purpose i went uh to the to that so i went looking for every video i could of january 6th with the purpose of seeing if i could find state representative ron hanks uh, election denier sean smith he's from colorado springs because um i knew that they were at january Six. I knew that they were at least at the Trump rally. I knew that Ron Hanks had walked up to the Capitol at around the time that the insurrection was just getting going. He said so himself. So my purpose now that Ron Hanks is running for U.S. Senate, I thought it would be a worthwhile journalistic pursuit to see if any of these videos captured what Ron Hanks was doing to see, to verify what he said he was doing or to contradict it. And I thought the only way to do that was to just go through the slog of of watching these many videos. I was also looking for Sean Smith, not just because of his election denying activities in Colorado, but he was in a picture with Ron Hanks that day. So I knew he was there. And my hunch was that he didn't just, you know, stand around at the Trump rally and go home. I thought um, if he did, in fact, go up to the Capitol, like a lot of people who were in Washington that day for the Trump rally did, that maybe I'd find him too. So I started, you know, and and the way ProPublica sets up these videos is very convenient. It's a very user-friendly way to do what I set out to do, to watch these videos. You can go one by one. The player works very well. It's user-friendly. Each video is time-stamped. Each video has a feature where you can link to it, and that's how I was able to link to all these specific videos that I found um, especially interesting in my piece. But very early into doing this, I realized that, that I was getting something more out of this than just a way to see if I could see Ron Hanks or Sean Smith or, 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 or other people with Colorado ties who might show up in the videos. I realized that I was getting an experience of January 6th that I couldn't otherwise get. It was a first-person experience. It was a virtual, virtual immersion in that event. And what I mean by that is that I was not watching, I, was, I wasn't just watching these videos, I was listening to them with the sound on. You can hear what the writers were saying to each other. You can hear the chants that they were chanting. You could, you could understand the event as it unfolded as if you were there. And so immediately I, I realized that, you know, this had some journalistic value as well, not just seeing if I could find specific figures in the crowd. And and because I was looking for specific figures in the crowd, I, 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 I didn't just like go through these videos kind of casually as I was just sitting around otherwise doing nothing else. I was looking very closely uh, at the video. So, you know, there, there were a lot of things that came through in doing that. And, uh, I'm happy to go through those 
those impressions uh, if you'd like me to yeah, retell. Yeah, no, now you're swinging for the fences, and it's an immersive experience that not many people would subject themselves to. So um, let me ask you uh, about a couple of themes, okay? Which yeah. is um, the role of religion in it and what you saw that made you think religion was a big factor or not a factor at all. Yeah, that's that's one part of January 6th that I really hadn't appreciated until I went through these videos, because at various times, and various locations around the Capitol complex that afternoon during the insurrection, you see in these videos um, singing, kind of like uh, hymn-like singing. You see uh, at, at least a couple of points episodes of group praying uh at one point i linked to a a video that captures a guy i don't know if he's uh, a a pastor in his life but he leads a crowd in prayer over a bullhorn at another point a a man who identifies who identifies himself as a pastor um, interviews a person who had just come from um, being inside the Capitol. He was actually inside the Capitol, and he uh, claims to have witnessed uh, Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist Ashley Babbitt, uh, being shot. And the um, interview ends with a prayer. That flag that you uh, mentioned it's um, this. This was a, a flag that I was not previously familiar with, and had to look up what it was. It caught my attention because it has a very stark design. It's a white field with a pine tree in the middle, and on the top it says "An Appeal to Heaven." Um, this is something that I didn't know previously, but this this flag goes all the way back to the American Revolution and Washington's um, troops uh, were flying this flag, and it has come to um, carry both revolutionary and religious um, connotations. So, <clears throat> watching watching these videos, um, various. Uh, signals to religion come up throughout the afternoon. And please tell me it isn't Judaism. No, I'm just kidding. But do please say that. Clear my people of involvement in any of this. You don't get the feeling that these are uh, strains of Judaism. You get the distinct impression that it's Christianity. I saw no Israeli flags. I did not see that. I did okay. not see rally flags. And you did say Nazi, which is the appropriate term. Did you see Nazis? Did you see neo-Nazis? Tell us about that. I didn't see neo, uh, neo-Nazi symbolism, although there are moments where you see symbols and indications of white nationalism, for sure. Uh, there's... Um, there was one person who appears to have had a couple of videos that were uploaded as part of this compilation who, at a couple of points, makes a hand gesture that um, I recognized as a 
white power or white nationalism sign. And that's, that's the, that's the, it's, it's kind of similar to like an AOK symbol where you put your index and together. Yeah. Which used to mean, okay, they pervert everything. They pervert the meaning of the word patriot. And you talked about that branch of Christianity. Christianity predates the American revolution, but they, Keep saying 1776. Lauren Boebert tweeted it out the morning of January 6th. What about watching the videos? Did you hear references to 1776 at all? Yes, I did. And that was another thing that was kind of um, revealing about watching those videos. I was aware of the Boebert tweet on that morning. So that morning she tweeted, today is 1776. And at the time, shortly after January 6th, I wrote about Bulbrich's role in and influence in inspiring um, January 6th, the insurrection. And that was one of the key um, points, uh, the key um, kind of indicators of her own culpability in that event, uh, aside from the reports of her giving large tours of the Capitol shortly before the insurrection. And later it was reported in Rolling Stone that her office had been in communication with the planners of some of the uh, pro-Trump events that day. Um, But what I didn't realize is that 1776 was uh, a common theme among um, the MAGA crowd and when you watch the videos, you hear 1776 being chanted uh, on a regular basis. Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist himself, at one point leads a chant with a bullhorn of 1776 when rioters, some of the very first rioters to break into the Capitol, the first thing out of uh, it sounds like a woman's mouth was. 1776 uh followed by a profanity and 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 interestingly that if i remember correctly that that particular video again uh which depicts some of the first people who broke into the capital itself was with um biggs uh, and i forget his first name uh, but his last name is biggs with two g's and he is a uh reputed uh militia leader and 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 speaking of that that's another thing that comes through in the videos is that the proud boys and the oath keepers and uh of particular interest to me three percenters um have a conspicuous presence you know we've come to learn through uh law enforcement investigations that there were organized factions of these militia members, but it's affirmed in watching the videos that if you were there, you didn't have to look very hard to see, um, like there's a three percenter flag that's pretty prominent flying up in the front lines of the mob as they're pushing through police lines. There's one video that shows uh, a, a young guy being interviewed about his escapades inside the Capitol and he's wearing a three percenter he's wearing three percenter insignia so you know the crowd was made up of uh, young people and old people and um, a kind of pretty broad cross-section of different kinds of people but if you were there you had to have known 
that there were militia members that were part of this crowd that you were part of too and and participating in the same kind of activity as 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 they were and so did you ever find ron ron hanks or sean smith I did not find Ron Hanks, but I did find Sean Smith. I found Sean Sean Smith in a video that uh, was taken at about at four thirty four, um, according to the timestamp, as represented as represented on ProPublica. And not only is he in this video, but this this video depicts one of the more um, chaotic scenes of uh, violence between the mob and police. And at that point, uh, my understanding of the timeline is that this is at a point where uh, Metro Police had arrived to offer assistance to the Capitol Police. And so it's a pretty substantial phalanx of um, law enforcement officers, but they're in riot gear with batons and shields, and they're facing off with dozens of uh, insurrectionists. And about halfway through this one particular video, which I think is about 39 seconds long, you see Sean Smith in that crowd. You don't see Sean Smith directly, at least not in the course of this video, engage with law enforcement officers. But he's he's most certainly in the middle of this crowd that uh, the front of which is in direct conflict clashing with law enforcement officers and he you know at one point he's you know maybe 10 feet away from police who are are being assaulted by um rioters i think this is really significant because um you know aside from from the activity of that crowd that sean smith is is part of uh, it's clearly he's clearly standing in an area that they're trying to clear. He's clearly in a place where he's not supposed to be. But on top of that, he's part of this crowd that's like physically in a in a physical uh, confrontation with police. This is fascinating because I had you on episode sixty four called Colorado Insurrectionist, and you had compiled the list of the people in Colorado who we most or who you most, Colorado Newsline, associates with the insurrection. And Bobert was on there, Corcoran was on there. But Sean Smith was a guy that I really didn't know. You educated me about him. And now tell everybody what's happened uh, this week. We're recording late on a Friday. We try to be as current as possible. It's all the news in snowy Denver on this Friday Tell everyone, not just Denver, all of Colorado, it stretches to Mesa County. Tell everybody yeah. that Tina Peters' story, she was in your top 10, and how it intersects with Sean Smith and Joe Altman and FEC. Bring everybody yeah. up to speed. Right, right. Well, my goodness, where where to begin? I mean, uh, let's start a in a bagel shop in Grand Junction. Yes. So on Tuesday, uh, Mesa County uh, District and District Attorney investigators had a search warrant related to an iPad that they apparently thought was in the possession of Tina Peters, who is the clerk, county clerk in Mesa County, who is uh, under uh, investigation. Uh, grand jury is investigating um, allegations uh, around. Um, 
Tina Peters, who is believed to have created, helped create a election system security vulnerability in her own office last year. All right. Let me see if I've got this straight. It's one of her subordinates in court who's there for a separate matter, but she's also being investigated as part of the Dominion uh, hanky-panky that Peters brought in, a guy who wasn't supposed to be there. Do I have this right so far? Yes, that's basically right. And she was apparently, the allegation is that she was in court uh, with her, where her deputy uh, was a, a defendant in a hearing, but Tina Peters was apparently recording. And, and do you know who that lawyer was standing there with her subordinate with Tina Peters right behind, allegedly recording on her iPad? Who who is the lawyer of the defendant of Belinda yes. Beasley? I, I don't know. Say he's been a guest in Craig's Lawyers Lounge a couple times. Scott Rice, who does his show called Crime Watch on YouTube. I okay. I haven't had a chance to talk to him about it, but he, he didn't see what was going on behind his back. At least I don't think so. But seems like this judge said, yeah, she's recording, even though I told her not to. And then he took it so far to probably say, I want something done about it. Bingo, bango, bongo. You know, the judges get to sign those warrants. <laughs> Uh, I've never seen quite a search like that. You know, be careful when you put on your iPhone in a a courthouse. Anyway, she she kicked back sort of like a mule when she was getting uh, detained. And now she's charged with that and she's made bond. But everybody's rallying to her defense. If you are on that big lie side of the fence, I bet Mike Lindell and Joe Altman and FEC... They're on the side of Tina, and they probably like that bad kick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for 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 people who have claimed that the election is stolen and that Tina Peters last year, what you know, the Secretary of State Jenna Griswold views as a security breach, they view as um, I don't know, maintaining election saving security. the republic, paving yes. the way for. The realization that Donald Trump not only really won in 2020, Quentin, he won in a landslide. Don't you get it? They do. Anyway, that's their mindset, or so they say. Um, but, but keep going with this story because it gets gets better and it gets dangerous. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. So, so Tina Peters, because of her behavior, during that interaction with law enforcement on Tuesday was subject to uh, an arrest warrant um, on which she turned herself into the Mesa County Sheriff's office on Thursday morning. Um, And those were a couple of misdemeanor charges, one related to the uh, Grand Junction police and the other related to the uh, DA investigator. So, that night, so we're talking about last night, Thursday night, there was an emergency meeting called by Joe Altman and his um, organization, FEC United, at a church in Castle Rock. And this turned out to be— And can I just remind everybody, it's faith, education, and commerce, with a big emphasis on faith. And it's, once again, not Judaism, thank God. Anyway, it's Christianity— 
Tina Peters is involved with Mike Lindell. I think they're driven by some Christian beliefs. They they wear their Christianity on their sleeve. How did she get yeah. from Grand Junction to this meeting? I assume the meeting was, well, you tell me where the meeting was. Well, so this was billed as a town hall um, and panel discussion. And so on the panel, it was kind of like a who's who of, of Colorado election deniers. You had Joe Altman. Who, where, where was this at? And was it last night, Thursday night? It was it was last night. It was at a church in um, Castle Rock. I think it was called the Rock Church, if I remember that correctly. Um, so did Tina drive from Grand Junction to Castle Rock, or do you know? I don't know how Tina got there. Um, but she was there personally after bonding was, out that morning. She was there personally, yes. Um, in fact, she made some comment about how she was wearing the same clothes that night as she was when she turned herself into police in the morning. I'm not sure quite what she was getting at that. All right, so we talking a small gathering, a big gathering? Tell us what happened. Based on the live stream, there was, I don't know, there could have been a hundred people in the the room, and up on the stage, you had Joe Altman, uh, you had Danielle Neuschwanger, who's a GOP candidate for for governor. Uh, Quite interestingly, you had John Eastman. John Eastman is the former uh, conservative visiting scholar at CU Boulder who uh, had to leave after he participated in the Trump rally on January 6th and uh, also was later found to have uh, kind of laid out a plan for a coup. A coup. A coup. A criminal coup. Yeah, a criminal coup. And so Sean Smith was there, uh, and Tina Peters was there, and uh, several other uh, assorted uh, election deniers. Oh, and and Ron Hanks. Ron Hanks was up there, too. Um, And and was there a a stage for VIPs? Were they in the front row where everybody could see them, or how was it situated? They were all arranged in chairs up on the stage facing an audience. So they were the big stars. They were were the big stars. They they were. And, And these are, you know, you have to say some of the most influential people on the far right, in Colorado, um, and specifically influential in their claims that not only was was the 2020 election stolen, but more importantly that that Colorado and national elections can't be trusted. So, if for to, to put it another way, these are the people. If we get into this November and beyond, and um, get to a place where voters don't trust that county clerks and the secretary of state and other election officials are doing their job honestly. It'll be because of the influence of the people who were on that stage last night. Um, but the, the, you know, kind of what became the marquee moment of the event was Sean Smith stood up and was talking about, um, you know, he, he has kind of like his um, pitch he does about how the Secretary of State 
is uh, a criminal and elections can't be trusted. And at one point he said pretty explicitly that Jenna Griswold should be hanged for treason um, and committing, you know, election fraud, basically. And this is after the crowd. He he was talking trash against Jenna Griswold, who's been a yeah. guest on my show. To me, she's trying to run honest elections, but she's been demonized by Republicans, not just these radical right wingers. A lot of people have joined in unfair attacks on her. But regardless, um, there they are threatening a woman and saying they're going to hang her after first. When he talked about her, the crowd started saying, lock her up, lock her up. Where have we heard that before? Who would advocate hanging? A guy who would say when asked by Jonathan Carl about the chant to hang Mike Pence, well, Jonathan, if you think about it, if it makes common sense, because if he's going to certify a bogus election, then we know what else could be the penalty. You know, they're the cheaters, not us, which is bullshit. And... Sean Smith, on a stage at a Castle Rock church, said to hang Jenna Griswold. And Jenna put it out in a tweet, and is this going to be the big one, or is this just another escalation that will go without consequence? At some point, there does have to be consequences for talking like that. And you can't, and you can't forget that on that stage also was Joe Altman. And Joe Altman, only months ago, as we reported and other people reported, called for executions of, you know, dozens of officials, senators who didn't vote the way he agreed with. And he, in particular, called for Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, to hang. So there you had on the stage somebody who had called for Jared Polis to hang um, next to a guy who last night from the stage called for Jenna Griswold to hang. So this is dangerous stuff. And, and do you know are, where they get that hanging crap from? Yeah, you know, it's 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 odd and and you know to to bring it back to I can Jenna, I can tell you where I think I know where they got that from. Have you ever heard of the Turner Diaries? Uh the anti-Semitic bigoted novel about white power guys culminates yeah. in a riot at the Capitol where they build gallows and hang mm-hmm. people. It motivated Tim McVeigh, motivated the killers of Allenberg, and motivated people behind Charlottesville. And those same white power people, as you witnessed and just told us, were there on January 6th. And those gallows are part of that hateful book, which these guys get off on. They get off yeah, on I, this stuff. I, I, I think I think it goes even farther back than that. I think, you know, with with the far right, there's this romanticization of the American Revolution, and I think it goes back to just an affinity for you know colonial times, and you know, and and I hadn't heard this before, but but Sean Smith followed that call for uh, Jenna Griswold to be hanged by saying something like, uh, sometimes the old ways are the best ways 
the old ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, where, where men, you know, women didn't really have power. I, you know, a lot of misogyny. Right. I mean, it's just disgusting. And and yet, uh, you being good journalist, you are. Before he made those comments, did you have occasion to talk to Sean Smith? I mean, that's what journalists do, even if a guy's the devil himself, I guess you got to give him a call and say, well, what's your side of this story? Tell everybody what happened. Yeah, well, it's it's funny you ask about that because um, in a story that Newsline published this week, uh, specifically about the one video where Sean Smith shows up on January 6th, uh, you know, I've written, I've written commentaries about Sean Smith uh, going back uh, into last year. And in the course of writing commentaries, you know, I'm relying on, you know, other published material and my own opinions that I've formulated based on, uh, largely based on other people's reporting or, or videos that I've seen in this case of Sean Smith. Um, so it's not quite the same as like putting together a news story, um, so I hadn't had occasion to speak with him, but for this story, I did think it was crucial to give Sean Smith a chance to um, talk to talk to us and and comment on the story that we're doing. So I I called him and he answered the phone. And how did um, he get his number? Oh. You know, Craig, we're we're journalists. We we figure out how to find people's numbers. It, it's actually not that hard in okay. most cases. Okay. If, well, I mean, Sean Smith—that's kind of a common name, but but good for you. And so you called him and uh, tell yeah, us what so happened. I called him and uh, I introduced myself as as Quentin Young from Colorado Newsline, and uh, you know, he 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 knows who I am. He's he's called me. I've heard him call me out. Uh, and Colorado Newsline before. So I kind of figured he'd know who I was, and he did, and he kind of laughed. And um, But he was cagey. He uh, didn't want to a- answer questions over the phone. He asked me to email him some questions. He didn't want to state what his email was over the phone, uh, but rather... He wanted to send me an email with a with an email address that I could uh, send to him, send questions to him. So he did pretty quickly send me. What? What? Uh, when did this happen? When did you make contact with him? Oh, let's see. I think this was a Tuesday morning, if I remember. All right, it's February eleventh as we talk, so that would be February eighth, my wife's birthday. Keep going. I think. Uh, yeah, I think it was Tuesday. Um, okay. So, um, because, and, and interestingly, the, just the night before I, I, uh, had spoken with, uh, Ron Hanks, um, and wanted to ask him very similar questions. I wanted to ask him about, uh, what he thought of, um, Sean Smith and Sean Smith's activities on January 6th, because we knew that they were together on that day. And I wanted to ask him about how long they were together. If he had accompanied Sean Smith to uh, other parts of the Capitol complex that day. And, and, and Ron Hanks, you know, he did answer questions. He, I, I'll give nice. him credit. And do you just call him at the state house? Does he answer that way? Or you, 
you don't Go have ahead. to reveal your methods. Yeah, if I called him, would he talk to me? Do you think? So I, I found I found Ron Hanks to you know be you know basically a nice guy on a personal I've, level. I've never met the man, so I would I would love to yeah. talk to him. Tell us about your conversation with him. Well, I just I I asked him about um, you know how long he had been with Sean Smith on January sixth, and, and and Ron Hanks said that uh, Sean Smith had somehow geolocated. Ron at the Trump rally and they uh, hooked up that way. And he gave me the impression though, that that was about all the time. You know, he didn't, he didn't spend a whole lot, lot of time with John Smith. Um, Ron Hanks has talked about walking from the uh, ellipse area up and to, to the Capitol. And he gave me the impression that at that point he was not with Sean Smith. Um, so did you tell him, Hey, I saw Sean Smith. He was in a crowd that was all riled up. I, I didn't see him with the weapon, but were you part of that crowd? And did you ask him that? I did. I did ask him that. And he said he didn't know anything about it. I, I sent Ron Hanks the uh, link to the video of where Sean Smith shows up and, um, this was after we had interacted by phone and he said he couldn't pick out Sean Smith, um, which I found not, you know, it's, it's Ron Hanks was not only with Sean Smith, but you know, there's a picture of them with the clothes they're, they're wearing. That's, that's one of the main ways I was able to identify Sean Smith in that video. And uh, I got the feeling that maybe he'd preferred not, just not to, to talk about it, which is okay. It's, it's, it's up to him if he wants to comment about uh, somebody else, but he, he told me to call Sean Smith. So that that's, and which I was going to do anyway, but that's, that's what I did. So. Um, so you talked to your good buddy, Sean, and he said he knew about you. And did he say he ever heard about you talking about him on the air? He did. Uh, one of the first things he said to me was that he heard me uh, talking talking about him in a way that he didn't approve of uh on the radio I, I figured out that what he was talking about was the last time i was on your show on the craig silverman show well, so uh, see, they think it's still the radio because you have to figure uh why haven't we heard this guy on one of the people on denver trump radio you know why why doesn't Peter Boyles play the Joe Oltman sound? He says that he's turned the corner on the big lie, but he's got the evidence and he won't play it. You know what I mean? So yeah. what, what's going well, on, Quentin Young? Well, well, you know, um, your, your buddy uh, Randy Corcoran did have Sean Smith on Randy's show last year. In fact, um, I missed that episode. Tell me about it. Back back in May, um, I haven't listened to the whole thing in, in, in a long time. But actually, that that interview with Randy Corcoran and, and Sean Smith is one of the moments when you learn, as far as I've seen, the most about Sean Smith's uh, background. You know, he's he's uh, uh, was a colonel in the in the Air Force and. Um, I've yet to really get into all the details about of what Sean Smith was up to in the Air Force. He was in the Air Force for, I think, over 20 years. Um, but he, he goes into, you know, at length, to the greatest extent that I've seen or heard, 
about what he was doing in the Air Force on the Randy Corporate show. That's something else. You know, they welcome Lauren Bober and all of that. You you wrote a great column, and I've been thinking about it as a lawyer. Uh, how the hell is Lauren Bobert even eligible to run again since she's an insurrectionist? You wrote about that. There's a big challenge to Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina, and I, I mean, it just seems right on point. She's an insurrectionist, and she tweeted 1776. At best, I can tell the burden of proof should be a preponderance of the evidence, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and let's get her ass out of there. What do you say? Right. Well, I hadn't thought about this before until the uh, Cawthorn challenge came up, but um, but Representative Madison Cawthorn is subject to a challenge to his eligibility to run for re-election. And this is based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was adopted after the Civil War. And, you know, it, the uh, folks in those days had the, had the Confederate uh, people in mind. But basically it says if, if Same you— thing. Keep going. Yeah, if you it says if you take uh, an oath as uh, an elected official in the United States, and then you um, engage in or aid um, an insurrection, you can't take the oath again, and that makes you that would make you ineligible to to run for. Uh, I think I think it covers you know basically any elected office, um, but you know in this case we're interested in Congress, so. The challenge in uh, North Carolina, um, when I took a look at that, it seemed to all, – all the elements of that challenge, you can find an analog for um, Representative Bogart. Except, um, except Madison Cawthorn did take the stage at the Ellipse, and he said some really outrageous stuff. But, but what yeah. did Bogart do behind the scenes? We know what she did. I, I'd love to see the January 6th committee give us the truth about that. Wouldn't you love that? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say exactly how closely they're looking at Lauren Boebert's activities and, and um, influence on the insurrection. But what, what we what's out in public already seems to indicate that you that first of all that the committee would have an interest in learning more about her activities, but but um, also that there's a potential exposure to, uh, under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So there's reporting, like I mentioned, that um, Lauren Boebert took a large group on a tour of the Capitol. At least three of her colleagues have uh, attested to that. One of them called it uh, a reconnaissance. Um, Rolling Stone reported that her office was meeting with planners of the activities that turned into um, the rally activities that turned into an insurrection. Oh, where is that video, Quentin? Why doesn't ProPublica have that? It must be that the Capitol Police are holding that back. A, a video of, of a video of, of the tours and in the days preceding January sixth. Where is that? Well, I don't, I don't know. There might be documentary evidence that there's got to be. Every time you, know. every inch of the Capitol is covered with cameras, not just on January sixth, but the day before and the day before that, and it wouldn't have been destroyed. It would be evidence. So, don't you wonder why we haven't seen that yet? 
Well, at this point, stuff like that might be in the hands of committee investigators. I hope so. It's as far as I know, not public. But They're going to have one chance or we're in a lot of trouble. I don't know if it's going to get to the hearts and minds. I'm so worried. Republican victory in the midterms. They'll do something crazy. They'll impeach Biden. They'll make Donald Trump the Speaker of the House. Talk me off the ledge, Quentin. How much time do we got? Um, I think you're, you've picked the wrong person to talk you off the ledge, Craig. Um, <laughs> because, you know, one of the things that I said in the pieces that were that the threat, you know, I, I really got to understand the scale of the threat of January 6th, but you know, that, that is in the past. So what does the future look like? You know, from my perspective, it's, it's kind of grim. Part of the reason for that is that the people who are culpable for inspiring January 6th have faced no repercussions. People like, uh, well, starting with Trump. I mean, he essentially paid no cost for directing his supporters to march on the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell. That's what he told them to do, and that's what they did. Lauren Boebert has faced no repercussions. She's raising more money than uh, I think any congressional um, candidate in in Colorado. She's got vast support and and probably will not have any problem uh, winning re-election. Um, you know, and you can go down the list for all the people who you can say were really culpable for inspiring January 6th. And beyond that, you just like with, with you know, the base uh, of Republican um, supporters, um, including in, in Colorado, believes the lie that the election was stolen. Now, if you go into this November with a, a vast portion of the electorate, not even trusting that the election can be honest, we're in big trouble. And if you and there's candidates who are running like Ron Hanks, who if they're um, say in the U.S. Senate and pushing the lies, the kind of lies that led to January 6th, I mean, I don't know what that means for the future of the country. I really don't. And if you have a Republican majority in either chamber, let alone both of them, um, constitutional order is really going to start to break down, for real. Um, well, let me be the optimistic one, because I think criminals always go too far. And at some point, it, it, the jury says, that's it. Do with Lindsey Graham, I'm out, but they stay out, okay? And I don't know, I'm just hopeful that uh, enough people keeping their eyes on it, like you, you did a service to the community watching it. Tell everybody how they can follow you on Twitter and how they can support uh, Newsline, your great enterprise dedicated to putting out the truth. Uh, give plugs for yourself and how everybody can read that column, both columns, the column about, well, you're covering the Sean Smith thing, you're, you've written about Lauren Boebert, and then you're uh, 500 video watch, it, all tremendous. Tell people how to access it. Well, sure. I mean, first I'd say, please go to coloradonewsline.com. That's our website. And uh, just to re reiterate, we we are a nonprofit. We're nonpartisan. We do have progressive commentary, but our newsroom uh, reports fair and accurately. We uh, have strict 
ethics about being nonpartisan and, and fair and accurate in our newsroom. We have um, uh, three full-time reporters. We have an intern who also works with us, and we cover politics and policy and other stories of statewide interest in Colorado. Uh, my Twitter is QP Young News. QP Young News, um, and Newsline Co. As in Colorado is is the uh, newsline Twitter. So if you if you go to our website, that commentary I think is still on the homepage, the one about the watching 500 videos, and you can. We don't have ads, we don't have a paywall or anything, so you just click on in there, and uh, you can get right to going through all our material. And you gave me the news that Sean Smith is following this show, and you know on social media and. We call it out. I call out talk radio because I know that world. I came from that world. It's great that you watch the videos. Other people are watching other aspects. And we just need to keep our eye out and communicate as long as we can because um, we're on the right side of this. These guys are attacking democracy. They're fascist. It's horrible. And I, I so appreciate you standing up all the time, Quentin, you're a hero in this. Keep going strong, okay? I appreciate it, Craig, and, and I can say the same for you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye now. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple Podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review, and your personal review kind words appreciated thanks so much tell your friends welcome to craig's lawyer's lounge Gosh, it's great to welcome to the show Matt Soper. He's a state representative from the Western Slope, and he's a fascinating dude. Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Craig. It's an honor to be on. I always brag about being a fourth-generation Denverite, but you are fourth-generation Coloradan, but with a different city that starts with a D and an E. That's correct. Uh, Delta. Oddly enough, it's about the same latitude as Denver, just a, a five-hour drive away. I did not know all that much about Delta until my nephew Charlie bought property right above the Gunnison in the Austin part of Orchard City. Holy cow, it gets confusing to me. Do you know that area? I do. I actually served on Orchard City's town council for one year. The year was 2012. And Orchard City has the distinction of having three zip codes, and none of which are named after the town. So you have Austin, Corey, and Eckert. So it's basically three communities that happens to have this overarching town. It's really a water district, but it makes it fascinating if you ever play Colorado trivia. I'll tell you what, it's a different part of the world, and what dominates there is the Grand Mesa. Wouldn't you agree? Right above oh, the community? What's that like? I mean, I've never been to the top. You have, I bet. What should I do there? I can't. There's Devil's Thumb Golf, and I'm a golfer. That's great. But tell people, first of all, what's the best way to get there from Denver? You so the best it? way Go would ahead. be to uh, jump onto I-70, 
and just keep going west until you hit Grand Junction. And then from there, you're going to take Highway 50 down to Delta. And so you only have to be on two roads. It's one of the most beautiful drives you'll ever take in America. You get to go through the Glenwood Canyon. You'll see the high mountains. And then you'll see more of the high alpine desert as you're going between Grand Junction and Delta that has some beautiful canyons, the Dominguez and Escalante canyons. But then the mountain that seems to be the the main focal point from both Mesa County and Delta County is Grand Mesa. It's the world's largest flat top mountain. But the one hike that I love to do, I do it every summer, is called Craig's Crest Trail. Craig's Crest? Craig's Crest, yes. It it could be named after you. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Although Scott McGinnis has a part of the world named after him, and he's been a guest, and you know him well. But keep telling me about Craig's Crest. I've never heard of this in my it, life. It is one of the most amazing hikes anyone can ever do because what happens is there's a point in time when it's only about 10 or 20 feet wide, but on both sides, it's a cliff that drops off several thousand feet on, on, on both sides. So it's just dramatic. It gets your heart pumping, but you get to see the La Salles over in Utah from there. You can see the San Juans to the south. It's it's just spectacular up there. And Tell me there's a handrail, and I'm down for this adventure. <laughs> Is there? No, there's not a handrail, but luckily it's a, it's a pretty flat trail, aside from the steep part getting up to where it uh, gets dramatic. Well, maybe my nephew will let me hold his arm, but he gave me a different way to get to Orchard City, which was to turn... Uh, and go toward Aspen. But instead of going toward Aspen, what is that, 83? You turn right as you get to Carbondale, go around beautiful Mount Sopris. Isn't that another way to do it? It is. And uh, and that's also one of our uh, historic and scenic byways here in Colorado. It takes you um, down the Roaring Fork Valley, and then you'll go over Highway 133, which takes you past Redstone and Marble and over McClure Pass. And then you go through Paonia and Hotchkiss over into Delta or Orchard City. I uh, I like to take that when the weather's good. It's um, it's breathtakingly beautiful. There's a point in time when you go over McClure Pass, it looks like someone should strike up the band and play the main theme song from The Sound of Music. It's It's that type of beauty. I love that kind of imagery, and I was blown away by that drive. But which one is shorter, given good weather? If you're driving to Delta, oddly enough, they're about the same. Uh, McClure Pass is maybe five to ten minutes longer in in good weather. and bad weather, of course, I would always take the interstate because that's where the state puts their resources and making sure the road is clear and safe. Now, when you're from Orchard City, it's okay to say I'm from Delta because it's Delta County, right? Yeah, 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 that's fine. People say that. Um, I mean, I moved to Delta a number of years ago. Uh, from Orchard City, but I, uh, I mean, that's. I mean, I, I tell this from. story about a witness I saw my buddy David Dansky examining, and he asked the guy's name. He said, "John Doe, and where do you live? Denver. What part of Denver? Aurora." <laughs> I mean, I. It's kind of funny, but when we travel, you know, maybe we'll say Denver if we live in a suburb. I do. Anyway, I'm a native Denverite. What about you in Delta? Four generations. Tell us about how your family goes that deep there. What did they do? 
Yeah, so my family came to Delta in 1887. They were uh, farmers and did a little bit of ranching as well. They moved out to Colorado from Western New York. And they, um, I mean, arrived just a mere, um, well, the Indians were removed in 1881, so six years after the Native Americans left the area and had been farmers right up until my my parents. My my mom went into school teaching and was an elementary school teacher for 40 years. And my dad was a semi-truck driver and he would drive Olathe sweet corn or Palisade peaches every day to Denver to the markets over here. And then he would backfill with things like Starbucks coffee along the way. Nice. And then my, my cousins still maintain the family farm and I have a little bit that I also continue to farm myself. And whereabouts do you live these days? We don't need an address, but tell us about <laughs> your life. Are you married, single? How do you manage to commute as a state rep from Delta to Denver? That's got to be time-consuming. It is. It takes uh, five hours one way. I um, I live in Delta near the hospital in actually the home that belonged to my grandparents and you know have a a pasture there and a tiny orchard and some things uh, like that. I um, I do find that the drive from Denver can be distressing at times. It it gives you the opportunity to clear uh, clear your head because in the legislature, obviously you're thinking about a ton of things all at one time, and and what is really valuable is just a little bit of time to reflect and to think about the world and where we stand. And so I do find that the drive in that regards, is very healthy. I have a few places where I can make phone calls, so I take advantage of that to be able to call constituents back. And then my wife commutes with me quite a bit, and so we use that as our time just together to be able to visit. But my wife is an attorney, a patent attorney, works for a D.C.-based law firm, telecommutes from Delta, but she will travel back and forth with me to Denver, and she's an immigrant from Taiwan. Wow, she's what a the, background. She's the smart one in the family. Well, that I don't know her, but I'll take your word for it. And you must be newlyweds to talk for five hours each way. <laughs> that's that, that's true. We got married in October of 2019. Can I make a suggestion once your conversation wears out for your trip and how you might pass the time? Sure. Listen to my podcast. Listen hey, to yourself. Absolutely. What do you listen to? Well, we uh, do occasionally listen to podcasts. Uh, we uh, sometimes listen to the radio, um, catch up on the news that way. I um, also at times I just love unwinding with music. And depending on my mute, it can be classical to pop. Can it may I depend just, on if I'm needing to stay awake. <laughs> well, well, that's cool. And we're going to get to your background. But before we leave Delta, there's a few more things we need to talk about. I had a near-death experience because I took my bike, and I was biking around beautiful Delta. And I stopped Fort Uncompagre. Did I pronounce that okay? Uh, I, yes, it's Fort Uncompagre. You did it better than me. But then I took a chance. And there's a nice... Bluff above Delta, right? Isn't there where I figured that's where the, you know, the coolest houses are going to be on the high ground. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, it's um, it's just right above the Gunnison River. 
Right. But on the other side from where my nephew lives. But anyway, it's above the town of Delta. And somehow I rode around. I got up there and then the sun was setting and there was a big hill. And I rode and I had the right of way. But like halfway down, I was blinded by the setting sun. And I was going about 40 miles an hour just because of the force of that hill. And I survived. But that was my near-death experience in Delta. Oh, wow. Do you know what I mean? You're going right into the setting sun there. It's so beautiful. That Grand Mesa, that's your water source for everything there, right? Uh, uh, it depends on where you live. So actually, my water source happens to be the Uncompahgre River. Uh, it's one of the rivers that goes through Delta. The other one is the Gunnison. I think the now Grand... I, can I clarify my limited knowledge? Sure. I think I was talking to the guy at Devil's Thumb Golf Course, and he said, boy, do we get our water from the Grand Mesa. Now, that makes sense, right? Uh, yes, that's correct. So Orchard City, Cedar Edge, uh, even North Delta get their water from Grand Mesa, which, by the way, a fun fact, there's only two Colorado towns that are fully get their domestic water from springs, and that would be uh, Orchard City and Aspen. Now, that's remarkable. Now, I saw some animals there on the practice greens and around the clubhouse at Devil's Thumb that looked like a mix of antelope, reindeer, elk, moose. I never saw an animal like this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you have different kind of animals out there? Uh, we do, although um, it should have been antelope. Uh, they seem to have uh, taken refuge at Devil's Thumb, and I try not to hit them when I play golf. With big horns on them, and they roam around in packs of about 2,000. It seemed that way. I, I got <laughs> frightened. Correct. And, yeah, they hang around the clubhouse there? Uh, yes. Uh, yep, they would be antelope. And they. Uh, I, I think they might be a specific type. I am not real sure what the type is, though. Different than Wyoming antelope. Yes. Yes, I do know that. They, they are different than Wyoming antelope. Here's the thing about you. I've talked to you enough that I think you're a different kind of politician, and it's cool. And I think it's part of your upbringing in Delta. It's a combination of factors. But just before we leave Delta, I have to talk about my hero, Felix Sparks, an American hero. And I know he was the Delta County DA. Do you have any connection to him, a famous Former Supreme Court Justice, I've done podcasts about him. Alex Kershaw wrote the bestseller, The Liberator, turned into a Netflix series. And he's part of Delta history, isn't he? He is, yes. I um, have a uh, loose connection to him. I mean, aside from both living or, or having lived in the same town of Delta. But his law partner was Charles Conklin. And Charles was the last person elected out of the city of Delta besides myself. So he was last elected in 1962, 54 years later, uh, I was elected. You mean and to represent your house district? The, um, uh, that's correct, yes, for house district 54. And, and so that's just that uh, uh, connection to Felix. And what are the competing cities that most of these prior politicians have come from? A lot have come from of course, the suburbs around Grand Junction, and then Fruta has produced a number of representatives. Well, the Clifton area has produced a couple. So it's actually been kind of well-balanced over the 50-year period. 
but it just takes a while to cycle through. If if people are going to serve anywhere from four to eight years in office, it can be a while before it comes back to being Delta's turn to be able to have a representative. And where are you in your uh, term? I'm in my second term running for my third term. And before we leave Felix Sparks, I have to mention his heroism liberating Dachau. He and his troops fought up from the boot of Italy all the way up there, and man, what they discovered. And uh, I understand you've been involved in remembering the Holocaust. I admire you for that, and as so many things we're about to talk about it, you do it in a bipartisan way. Sure, you're a West Slope Republican, but on the Holocaust resolution and other things, you're right there with uh, your fellow legislators. That's correct. Last year, I was one of the uh, co-prime sponsors of the Holocaust resolution, along with Representative Michael Sinjanae, who's from the Denver metro area, a Denver Democrat. And she's Jewish. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. So for both of us, our day of worship is Saturday. But a connection. It's when to the ha- sun goes down on Friday, and as we tape this, let me say Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. And as um, I mean, you guys I, I, do celebrate it from nightfall, just as Jews do, right? Oh, oh, we do. Yes. Beautiful. Keep going. So you sponsored this resolution. Why was it important to you? What does your Seventh Day Adventism have to do with it? Yeah, so it was important to me that it was bipartisan because right now all of the Jewish members of the legislature happen to be Democrat. So so to me it's really important symbolically to show that remembering the Holocaust is not a partisan issue. The other reason is I, I had taken a legislative trip to Israel and had 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 seen um, their their museum remembering the Holocaust. Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem, yes. And it is an incredible um, portrayal. At first, it plays with your emotion because the way the walls start to close in on you, you you go from feeling like a human who's standing upright and proud to one who feels about one inch tall and in a very dark place. And it almost puts you in a little bit of a depression for, for a while. So it, it does a great job of just pulling you into this dark time that was known as the Holocaust. And then being an Adventist, we confused the uh, Nazi regime because for some, they thought we were either lying and, and, and that we were associated with, with Jews, maybe uh, pretending um, that we were Christians when we were really Jews. For um, others, they um, saw us as just being a different Christian sect, but we definitely uh, confused them. So about half the Adventists did end up uh, in some sort of a camp. The other half were left alone, and it really just came down to whoever the SS officers were that knocked on the door. I'm a lot older than you, but I've never been in a museum more impactful. And the way it was described to me, and you've described it beautifully as you entered, there's, there's video of a Polish village before the Holocaust, because... Heck, it was a time when they already had movie making, you know, wasn't as sophisticated. And then life went to crap and the walls narrow in. And eventually, eventually, thank God you see some righteous Gentiles 
and my goodness, the emotions that brings out. And then you emerge on a portico overlooking Jerusalem, and you understand the reason Israel has to exist. And it's just a terrible chapter in human history we can never repeat. It just stays with me. You bring it up. Keep going in your own uh, meaning you took out of there. Yeah, it it had such an impact. Um, just being at the museum, being in Israel, knowing Jewish members and and friends within my district, that this autumn I had several Jewish constituents reach out to me when there was kind of a rash of anti-Semitic statements that had been made throughout Colorado, and they reached out to me and they said, "Matt, we've walked with you. We've knocked on doors." with you. We've supported you. They said, we are being picked on and we need you to stand up for us. So I wrote an op-ed saying it's time to squash anti-Semitism and was very forceful in in my portrayal there. And I I said that, uh, you know, this, this is the type of behavior that should never exist in our society. And that is all rooted in these experiences. And I believe that when constituents reach out, you are their representative and need to take the stand because you're who people look up to as well. Well, God bless you for that. And uh, I should have maybe introduced you more properly, but I think it's appropriate right here. And I like this order because we can hear that you are very bright and it's product of your education, not only in Delta, but you went on to get a few graduate degrees. Just tell people about that. That's correct. I um, grew up in Delta, went to Delta High School, went down the road to Mesa State College, even served as student trustee and and, and made state history at that time. I, I ran and it it was an exact tie, and my opponent was an African-American football player. And the president of the university, Tim Foster, who actually held the seat I currently hold prior to this, or, or a few um, members back, he said, guys, I really think maybe it was the voters' intent that both of you share this office. So we got an opinion from uh, Attorney General John Southers at the time, and he said, because this is an advisory position, that he didn't see why we couldn't have two people hold it if that was truly the voters' intent. So now, we what go year down. was this? Uh, this would have been 2005. And what? How many votes each? So we had uh, 2,400 and like one votes each. Oh my gosh! An exact tie. An exact tie. They recounted it five times. My brother was in the room watching, and he just kept shaking his head and. And so we uh, we shared this office for uh, one year, and we went down in Colorado history. Wait, being... I, I can't let this go. Were there any disputed ballots? What, no, kind, of, what kind of ballots were there? Did check uh, your name? Uh, yeah, yeah, so it was each of our name, and then you got to fill in a bubble. And and we went through each ballot one by one, and it, it was pretty clear that like no one had like crossed out a name and filled in another one. Trust me, I looked for every way to not have it be a tie. Did you think about calling the ballot counter and saying, could you find me one vote somewhere? I 
I mean, as they did multiple recounts, I mean, I just kept hoping there would be an additional ballot somewhere. Anyway, it sounds like this has a happy ending, even though they say it ties like kissing your sister. Uh, I've never heard that, but that's, yes, I could see that being true. The, um, the, the happy ending is this is the only contested election in Colorado to go unresolved. Uh, we, or, or, or I guess the resolution was we shared the office. I um, was invited to his wedding. Um, actually, I think I was the only white guy at their wedding because being African-American, he actually married someone else who was African-American. And, and we um, ended up being uh, just really good friends. And out of this, the school at that time didn't take Martin Luther King Jr. Day off. And we petitioned the rest of the board to make it a school holiday and then came back the next year and actually asked to have a reading of I Have a Dream speech every year on campus, and that tradition still continues to this day. So a little bit of a legacy there. From oh, that's, Mrs. that's fantastic. But what was your reason for doing that? I'm sure you value education. There's a lot of talk. We can't keep missing school, this and that. But was MLK an important figure in your life? I mean, to tell you the truth, I hadn't thought one way or the other about Martin Luther King Jr. until seeing what he was fighting for through Reggie Norman. He was the the other student trustee that I shared the office with. And understanding through his eyes what equality meant, I realized this is a fight I have to take up because it seemed pretty clear that one of us couldn't do it alone. We we had to be united. But then as we got the day off, I remember making the comment, everyone's going to go up and go skiing. I mean, we're college students. It looks like just another day off pretty close to Christmas and that we need to go one step further and actually highlight what it is that we're celebrating when we celebrate MLK Day because it's more than just a man. It's actually about ideas that he was pushing that weren't unique to him at all. Uh, these these are ideas of equality that goes back since since we started as a human race and has been something that we, we've been fighting for. And so to be able to portray that to me was really important. I mean, it's an institution of higher ed and to not take this as an opportunity for education, I just felt uh, would, would would have been a really sad point. So that's why I advocated to go one step further. What a great spokesman you are for your alma mater, which I'm always confused by the name. I, I think of it as Mesa State, and uh, I'm an old guy. What's the name now? And I bet a lot so, of people go through that confusion. Yes, I. Uh, it's now Colorado Mesa University, and I like to joke that the minute I left, they decided that they had to change the name to erase the stigma. <laughs> I don't think so. I bet they're really proud of you. And what about the, Reggie Norman? Yeah. Where is he these days? Yeah, so he's uh, now in the Denver metro area, and he's a school teacher. And they have uh, uh, two wonderful kids. That's great. He sounds like a hell of a dude, but you are too. And what you did next with your education blows me away. Tell everybody. Yeah. So after that, I, I did something that probably no one expected, and I um, crossed the pond, meaning the Atlantic Ocean, to the United Kingdom, where I began a LLM in public international law focusing on maritime piracy 
at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Okay, wait a second. I know what LOL means, but LOM, <laughs> what does that mean? So it's a uh, fancy Latin word meaning uh, lagunus masteris, but it's a master flaws. And so for me, it was just um, in, uh, entering the realm of public international law. Is, it's uh, one of the few LLMs you actually could do before a base law degree. And I loved my time in Edinburgh so much that within that, that first year, I applied to do their LLB program, another Latin initial, which uh, stands for Lagumis Basteris, uh, or Bachelor of Laws. Okay, so that's two law degrees. Seriously? That's, that's correct. Yes. Did you stop there? No, I didn't. So after four years in Edinburgh, I came back to the U.S. and went to the University of New Hampshire School of Law and earned a second LLM in intellectual property law. And that is what I used to be able to uh, sit for the bar exam in New York. Okay, I've had countless guests in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, but none of them with three law degrees yet. As I understand it, you got your legal education not with practicing law in mind. You'll leave that to the little people like me. <laughs> do, I, do I have it all correct? Why did you get those three law degrees? That's correct. The The point of my education was not necessarily to practice law. It was to go into public service. So I was very specific in in my education. I knew that for me, I really wanted to be a state legislator ever since meeting my state legislator back when I was in high school. That was Matt Smith at the time, back in the early, early 2000s. And I really wanted to be able to represent Delta, which I said hadn't had anyone from my hometown in 50-some-odd years. Now, isn't that and, Matt Smith related to Scott McGinnis? That's correct. It, uh, it's Scott McGinnis's brother-in-law. That's so great. it's a small world. Scott and I go way back. Scott's great. He's uh, he's also been one of my mentors. Nice. And, and you, uh, you you represent an HD fifty four most of Mesa County, but for the city of Grand Junction, right? Uh, that's correct. I have uh, all of Mesa County except Grand Junction, and then Western Delta County, including Delta, Orchard City, Cedar Edge, and all of Grand Mesa. All right, back to you and Matt Smith and your commitment to public service. Why the three law degrees? Does that serve you well now that you're in the state house? It does. It serves me incredibly well. Being trained in the law when you're making law is very valuable because you understand that words have meaning and that lawyers and judges, the bureaucracy, and even the layperson are going to open up these red books we call the statutes. And, and they're going to look at what we've written, and they're going to have to interpret it. And so having a law background means that you're thinking about how it's going to be interpreted as you're crafting bills and amendments. And it's very, very thoughtful and very deliberate in my mind. And members who, who don't necessarily have a legal training definitely struggle with that. So they will want to put words in the law that are not part of the law. And so they'll, they'll really confuse the language of the law. And a good example would be just how we refer to minority Coloradans, for example, in the statutes. You see the phrase persons of color 
you see the phrase uh, minority, you also see it spelled out, uh, Latin American, African American, Asian American. And a lot of that comes from not being consistent with, with our words. Uh, there's, there's other areas, um, maybe not quite as clear with how the law does try to confuse people. But my uh, legal background, I found, has been very helpful, and a lot of members do do come to seek advice and counsel. And it's also made it easy to work across the aisle as well, because I I tend to be a, someone who goes across the aisle quite a bit, actually. But yet, I don't cave at all on my conservative principles. Instead, I'm able to talk about why there might be an issue of concern, whether it's for my district or or just in the drafting of a bill, and be able to have that conversation, but not let it get in the way of my relationship with the member. I mean, there's there's a number of Democrats that I consider good friends and close friends. We've even had dinner at each other's homes. Nice. And they it's remarkable say, it, in these times. That's why I like you. Uh, oh, thank keep, you. Keep going. Yeah, and what I find from that is you'll have members that they may say things I disagree with, especially from a partisan point of view. I mean, it's a political arena. Of course, we're all going to be saying partisan things that irritates the other side. And mostly that's on purpose. But I never let those remarks get in the way of our friendship because I know that there's a difference between interacting with someone as a person, what we do because we're political actors in a political arena, and then what we do because we're legislators drafting laws and amendments to the statutes. And all three of those need to be compartmentalized in my mind because getting into politics, I really want to be the legislator I always dreamed a legislator should behave. And I know that time in the public arena is limited and that you should give 110% and really be a role model for the next generation because the law says we can only have these seats for a maximum of eight years or four terms. So you should really be the legislator that that we all think a, legis uh, a legislator should be. That's wonderful. And it's a great segue into how we know each other. We don't go back very far. I think it's social media that brought us together. But before that, you were saying you knew a little about me. Let's go into our relationship. Yeah, that's correct. I um, actually first became acquainted with you, not ever having met you, but uh, from a radio show you were on. And I can uh, remember listening to it out in Delta. And I, I, I always thought it was a very um, a, a thoughtful approach you had. You had someone who was more from the conservative persuasion and Dan Kaplis. Dan Kaplis, Kaplis and Silverman, excellent radio show. But to me, it seemed like you, you had um, two lawyers or at least two guys who, who two were lawyers. disciplined. Yeah. Yep. Uh, thank you. Two, two lawyers. They, they, they were very disciplined to focus on issues and not on personalities. And per perhaps that, that radio show had an inspiration on me uh, and and how he ended up as well. But I I think about that uh, from time to time and wish you guys were back on the air. That's fascinating. And I could go down that rabbit hole, but I mean, realistically, do you think that's possible anymore in today's environment? 
To be brutally honest, probably not. I. And I why do need... why do you think that's not possible? Yeah, I. I just see the the canyon between the two ideologies having gotten wider and deeper, and there there doesn't really seem to be that many members, say in the legislature or even respected members of a community who are willing to say, okay, let's not attack each other as far as individuals, but let's look at issues and problem solving. And, and there's going to be a different way to solve problems. I mean, that's why we have different ideologies. I mean, we approach things from different perspectives. But those conversations are very healthy. And I just kind of worry that a lot of people have realized that saying something a little bit extreme and a little bit more extreme drives more viewers, more people to follow a program. And more people following a program means you can sell commercials at a more valuable rate and you could sell books and and people and, want to reinforcement they're not like you maybe you start playing to the base but i do think there's an audience out there and hey maybe you and i can start a show but i want to get to concrete examples of you working with democrats that really excite me and let's further extend how we got to know each other uh other than you listening to me on the radio, because I confess that maybe I heard your name and maybe I don't pay attention that much to people from the Western Slope. I can barely keep track of people from Metro Denver, but you caught my attention when uh, I heard you on George Brockler's radio show calling in to say, you know what, George, I supported that resolution that seemed to... uh, uh, I'd say take a Trumpian point of view, a distorted, irrational, crazy point of view, questioning the last election, supporting Tina Peters, a host of things. I know it's more complicated than that, but let me tell you what I heard is you called George Brockler and said, my bad, that resolution was not good. I voted for it because I had COVID. I was doing this remotely. I didn't study it the way I normally would if I was healthy and present, and I want everybody to know I don't support that resolution. And when I heard that, I tweeted about it because I was impressed that somebody could stand up and admit when they made a mistake, and you did not want to be on record for supporting that resolution. I thought, this guy just did a big thing, and I tweeted my praise, and then you retweeted it, and I saw that you followed me, and then I followed you, and Let's stop right there because then you DM'd me an exciting piece of legislation. But did I get that right? And why don't you expand on what was happening in your world? And I hope your COVID is all gone. Thank you. Uh, That is an excellent synopsis, and I appreciate your kind words. I'm, first of all, fully healthy. I was away from the legislature for two and a half weeks, having walked in on the first day and caught it and seemed to have a bit of a bad strain, but I'm back and and fully healthy. The um, the the vote was quite troubling, and I I know many people were were stunned when I was the first Republican to immediately walk back my position and and to be so public about it. From my point of view, when I was able to read the amendment, and it, and just to explain context a little bit more. 
I was participating remotely and there's a couple of cameras in the house chamber, one that shows you the chamber and the other one that shows you where members are debating. And that's really all you can see when you're remote, aside from the other members who are also remote. It's basically a Zoom call. And I couldn't see the amendment because they placed the amendment on an overhead projector. So using some old school technology, which doesn't quite tie into being on the Zoom image. So I could only go off of the tenor of the debate and judging how other members were voting, which is not good. I mean, I am always one who likes to read before I take any sort of a vote or action. But uh, the vote was called, and I mean, there was just no way stopping kind of progress. So I thought I was just kind of following along, which which I you know should should never done. I like to be a little bit more independent than that. And when I heard about the amendments, was actually from uh, some key constituents who uh, called me up by that afternoon and said, "Hey, Matt, what did you vote for?" And the, the member who ran these two horrible amendments had put them up on his social media, so I was able to read them that way. Who was that? Uh, it was Dave Williams from Colorado Springs. Running against Doug Lamborn to replace him in the U.S. House. Keep going. That's correct. And reading them, the, the, the first one was thanking Ron Hanks, who, who's a member of the House, who's uh, running against Michael Bennett uh, for the U.S. Senate. Whose opening campaign ad featured a dilapidated old copy machine with the words Dominion written on it, and he's shooting it with some powerful uh, weapon you can probably purchase in your local gun store. Thanks to Ron Hanks. Keep going. Yes, so this amendment said, thank you to Ron Hanks and the millions of Americans who peacefully demonstrated on January 6th in Washington, D.C., exercising their First Amendment rights. Do you like and, that part? No, and I'll tell you why. January 6th may not have been as horrible of a day as some Democrats may say it was, but it was not a peaceful day as that amendment made it sound. I think anytime you have windows being broken and, and citizens putting lawmakers' lives at fear, that is not peaceful. And In order I to stop the counting of the votes for the president of the United States and from Mike Pence doing his job and they built gallows for him and chanted, hang Mike Pence. Let's, let's just leave that aside. It's bad. Keep going on the resolution. You recognize it's bad. Tell us the other bad parts of this resolution. Yeah, so the other amendment that was ran also by Dave Williams it um, criticized Mesa, uh, Mesa County, or District Attorney, or I should say 21st Judicial District, District Attorney, which is Mesa County, Dan Rubenstein. A prior guest is, in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Where did he go to high school, sir? That's a good question. I don't Cherry, know where he Cherry went. Cherry Creek High School. Keep going. Okay. Well, And who's yeah, his brother? Julian Rubenstein, my guest, written a great book called The Holly about our 
a gang situation in Denver. But keep going. Dan Rubenstein, awesome. DA, oh, oh, Mesa I'm County. things right here. Yes. Uh, but it's DA not Rubenstein. just a one-way learning experience. I know hey, some Hey, I love things. it. Yes. Uh, he is um, someone that I know quite well. He uh, is just about one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he's and a Republican. He's a Republican and a conservative Republican as well. And so to say that he was persecuting Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk and recorder, is A, flat out wrong. Uh, B, uh, it's factually incorrect as well. And C, it is not the place for the legislature to be telling a district attorney how to do his job under the separation of powers doctrine found within the state constitution and even the U.S. constitution. Well, now we, you're going to start citing the Constitution on Yeah, this. I know. Uh, you know. You know, that little document we're supposed to follow from time to time. And the fact that if we got down to a system where every time a prosecutor brought a case or even investigated something, you got to say, oh, look, he's a Republican or he's a rhino or he's a Democrat or he's a this or that. I just think it's outrageous practicing in the system. You have to take each charging document or indictment on its merits and if you say it's all political look i ran in 96 against bill ritter whatever happened to him no he's he's <laughs> doing great he's working for csu and we're back to being friends but the bottom line is you got to keep politics out of it and for for public officials to attack dan rubenstein preemptively that's just wrong your three law degrees educated you on that point am i right uh, exactly, which is why it was really that amendment that I said, I've got to do something public. And that's why I chose to go on George Brockler's radio show. He was also a former DA and and had ran for attorney general. Uh, George is one of the most well-respected Republican attorneys in Colorado. And to break this news story on his show to me was the place to do it because Lawyer to lawyer and someone who stays the Constitution to someone else who stays the Constitution, this is where you know, I wanted to be very clear and very deliberate as to why it was bad. We were even voting on these amendments. George, we should have never, ever yes. voted. No, you shouldn't have. And if you didn't have COVID and you were there, I bet you would have tried to stop it before it even got announced. I would have. Absolutely. Now, let's go back, and I want to make one point. I hope you'll give me an amen, brother, but you don't have to. And that is that I'm following this January 6th committee with great interest. And if they bring out charges or accusations that I think are bogus or political, I'll say that. But I don't like anybody saying, we don't want to see what they have to say because they're uh, not bipartisan. Well, Kinzinger and Cheney are on there. But they're saying it's a deselect committee, as certain former president says that. And I want to see what they have to say. How about you? I do, too. I, I, I would like to see what they come out with. I think that you know, we, we might be able to guess, but we may not be able to guess. I, you know, I haven't been privileged to see what evidence they've been looking at. And right. I do think we should... Uh, we shouldn't pre-poison the result by saying... No. Do you see what I'm saying? And can I get an amen? 
Yeah, hey, amen. You know who I couldn't get an amen from? And it disappointed me in a great interview, and I'm so thrilled he came on, was George Brockler. I don't know, five or six weeks ago, and we talked about a lot of things, including his friendship with Joe Altman, but he played that little Republican game of, oh, you can't trust Nancy Pelosi's committee. Well, hell, they tried to put Jim Jordan on there, and you can see what a conflict he had, and... Uh, Kevin McCarthy's a critical fact witness. It's not right the way he tried to manipulate things. And then in good faith in your legislator, you know that he sent that guy Katko, a, a respected Republican, to negotiate the terms of a bipartisan committee. And they worked out a deal with Benny Thompson. And then uh, somehow on orders from Mar-a-Lago that went bye-bye, they, you followed all that, didn't you, Matt? I followed it loosely. I um, have to admit, it got to a certain point where, for me, it was just taking too much of my time right. that I needed to be able to commit to Colorado and my legislative duties that I I, I got that. That's why I, I covered would, on my podcast that you can start listening to religiously. Hey, I'll, I'll listen to it on my commute back to Delta. Well, listen to the best part, which is that after this kerfuffle, and uh, I got a DM from you saying, hey, Craig, I'm introducing some legislation that maybe you like, maybe you don't. Look at it. And I don't like it, Matt. I love it. I love what you did. It's triggered all sorts of thoughts in my head. I love the fact that this is legislation that's bipartisan. It's good for the people, and it's not your only foray into bipartisanship and trying to do great things for Colorado. Let's start with the law that I love that you sent me, and I think you knew I would like it, and tell everybody about it. Awesome. Well, well, thank you for your kind words, and yes, I kind of had a hunch you might like it. So what this bill does, it's one I'm running with uh, Representative Mike Weissman from Aurora, a Democrat who's chair of the House Judiciary Committee. And, and a great legislator, by the way. He uh, He's wicked smart. He's thoughtful. Yeah, he does some things I disagree with, but we get along great, and I regard him as a friend. And we're on this together. Uh, let me tell you what it does. It will create a website with all of the judicial opinions from the Court of Appeals and the State Supreme Court, free of charge, accessible from your own home, as a citizen, and the the point that underlines all this is that case law is considered law. It's how statutes and regulations have been interpreted to have legal meaning, but it's also how the common law has developed as well, and how certain rules. You don't have to go to Scotland to learn that, but it helps, right? Because it comes from the English tradition. It does, and. A little bit of a funny fact is a sidebar here, but uh, I can remember one day arguing over the National Popular Vote Compact, actually with Representative Weissman, and he made a comment that our legal system was inherited from England, and I responded au contraire, that uh, our legal system in many ways tried to be more anti-English, which is why we actually have more of an embrace of Scottish law. Although I could have been brainwashed having earned a Scottish law degree. <laughs> but uh, that's a little bit of the uh, side. Did you have there. to wear a kilt to your graduation? 
I didn't have to, but, you but did? uh, uh, I didn't No, I, um, uh, I did have a lot of my classmates wear kilts. Uh, I was still a little bit nervous about wearing a kilt. I would be too. Keep going. So tell us, so here, here's, if I could summarize it. And Please. The statutes are available online now because we have this thing called the World Wide Web and almost everything's up there. So you can find recent case law, but not older Colorado case law, which still may be applicable to a situation that you as a citizen confront. And you should be able to read everything about the law with a keystroke or two. And now, thanks to Matt Soper working with Democrats, it's going to happen. Absolutely. And it, it's now, I'm, this, assu- uh, I'm assuming passage and the governor is signing it. Do you have that wired? Oh, we do. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, the powers that be within the Capitol are in support of our bill. Uh, everyone likes it. It's uh, something that we feel like needed to be done a long time ago. In 2003, we put these statutes and the state constitution online for the citizens to access. A few years ago, we put the regulations online. During the pandemic, we put the governor's executive orders all online. And the last remaining source of law is case law. Right now, you can only find cases from 1998 to present, kind of corresponds with the development of the internet. They did the current cases, but never historic cases. And because our state had sold off cases from 1980 to 1998, we actually don't have easy access to those particular cases. So we found an innovative way to be able to bring these cases to the people to be cost efficient. To track down and scan all these cases could cost several million dollars. But our bill is going to have about $100,000 startup cost. And that's because we're going to contract with a company like Westlaw, LexisNexis, Bloomberg, who already do this for lawyers. They charge a gazillion dollars to lawyers to be able to have this fancy software. Aren't you putting them out of business? No. And actually, they're actually supporting this bill. And the reason why they like this bill is they've had a number of people who will go and they'll scan a case that will have the key sites and the annotations. And and those are the copyright protected elements that Westlaw or Lexis puts on to the cases. And then they'll put those somewhere online. And then Westlaw and LexisNexis are in the difficult situation of, do you sue that citizen for copyright infringement? Because it's clearly copyright infringement. Or do you kind of look the other way? Well, if you look the other way too much, then it's really easy for a federal court to say that uh, they have waived their copyright and that it um, basically is open access at that point. So to be able to have a public version where they can access only the raw opinions of the court, it means that a citizen wouldn't have this weird excuse of, uh, you know, I basically pirated a copy. Now they can actually go to the original source. Are you old enough to have gone to law school when law libraries were a big deal? Yes. I loved the law library up at the Fleming Law Building. I liked it at the Colorado Supreme Court. I even, don't tell anybody, would go to DU Law Library occasionally. How about you? 
rank your law libraries and whether you like them or not? Oh, I uh, fell in love with law libraries. Uh, actually, I literally fell in love in a law library, as that's uh, actually where I met my wife. I met several almost wives in law libraries. <laughs> I think a lot of us did as well. Uh, I just happened to stick with the same one. Um, the um, My favorite law library would have been the University of Edinburgh Law Library. It um, was in a 400-year-old building. It was on the second and third floors. You had these um, beautiful um, Georgian windows that looked out on the city. And and if you uh, weren't studying, you could look out the window and see storms come in off the North Sea. And, and then you could go pull case law from the stacks and read the case for the next day's lecture. That sounds fantastic. And isn't it, it sort of like being Sherlock Holmes, keeping with the UK theme? Because you're looking maybe to write a great brief for an essay to get an A in a class, and you're going down some rabbit hole, and you're chasing the digests and the key numbers and the point, and you find a case out of nowhere in the last book you were going to look at, and there it is. And you feel like, ah, case solved. I win. That describes my uh, my time in law school. And by, by the way, Sherlock Holmes was written in Edinburgh, by the way. The, um, the connection to great writers in Edinburgh is actually no secret, but I think I've found the reason why. That's because Edinburgh has such horrible weather between being rainy and cold that the only thing you really have to do is uh, be inside <laughs> reading and writing. And so as a student, it probably made you pretty disciplined. Uh, to explore the uh, the stacks and and to find the particular um, case or the opinion that uh, you're looking for, uh, for me it was always exactly as you described. It's this beautiful scavenger hunt where you're in pursuit of what the law is, the radio decidendi. Was that Greek or Latin? Uh, that's Latin. Uh, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, it stands for the. Uh, Although it was great to me. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that means the reason for the decision. And to, to understand the reason fully, sometimes just for the heck of it in the law library, knowing that some parts of the library you could actually access books um, that were dated from the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s. And I sometimes would pull those books just because I wanted to feel the history. Mm-hmm. Now, that's cool. Really cool. Have you ever been to the University of Colorado Law Library, even the, 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 either the modern one at the Wolf Law Building or the old Fleming Law Building? I've been to the one at the Wolf Law Building, and I've been to the one at the um, Sturm College of Law at the mm -hmm. University of Denver. And, and, and both of them are amazing. I re remember at the Sturm College Law Library, I met Justice Scalia one time. And he had given a lecture, and I had taken a, a book that he had written. And I asked him to sign it for me, quite nervous, fairly young at the time. And he says to me, did you read this? As he's kind of flipping through the book. And he says, I only sign books for uh, the people I've actually read. <laughs> and I had actually uh, underlined stuff and written in the margins. And he's like, oh, actually, you have read this. <laughs> so he wrote this nice little note uh, 
uh, on the cover page. Now we're talking details of going to law school, and I'd use a four-color pen and a highlighter to read cases. What was your style? Uh, very similar. I uh, had a blue pen, a black pen, a yellow highlighter, and I also had a pencil. Can I tell you my Scalia story, my encounter uh, with the great man of the right? I... I was at the Supreme Court, one of my first visits. There's a fire alarm. Everybody has to vacate the building. I find myself standing on the sidewalk with Scalia, and you know what he was doing? No. Smoking a cigar. <laughs> awesome. I wondered if he had caused the fire alarm. Uh, <laughs> well, you do know he couldn't have yelled uh, fire. Right. He knew that case law pretty darn good. So, and just before we leave the subject to show that I'm not that smart, or maybe you just don't know things, like you never heard that expression, uh, ties like kissing your sister, because you probably don't follow football too close, because a lot of people have said that. Or maybe it's just one of those things that passed you by, like shepherd citations. Now, that's Something every lawyer knows that when you get the case law, you have to make sure to follow the shepherd citations to make sure it wasn't overturned or it's still good law. Do I have that right, Matt? That's correct, yes. There's that was they had a big building in Colorado Springs near Colorado College where I went, and it looked like a mausoleum and it said shepherd citations, and I assumed it was some kind of mausoleum or where you get headstones or something like that. And I didn't know until I advanced to CU Law School. So that's how dumb I was. But you're telling me that Westlaw and Lexus can still make money because lawyers will want that kind of service like shepherd citations? That's correct. It, it makes research more efficient and faster, which when you're billing a client is very important because you want to be efficient with your time. The client's not paying you to search through thousands of cases and read them all. They're paying you to get to their particular issue as quickly as possible. And Shepard's citations, other annotations, uh, the um, uh, articles that they will have attached also that uh, just help interpret the particular legal issue that is really valuable for you to be able to quickly get to the information you need. And that's not, that's not required by the public to have access to that. I mean, that's, it's copyright protected. It's something that these companies have invested hundreds of thousands of man hours to develop and are very careful with, because if they mess up on, on the interpretation, I mean, they potentially could change our entire legal system. Right. But it for fairness to the citizen, it probably would be nice under each statute to give the statutory annotations, i.e. the cases which have been interpreted, the laws that Matt Soper and his buddies wrote. But I suppose that would be a little invasive into their work product of the people well, who uh, do uh, that. I'm, I'm going to stop you there because actually Colorado is one of the few states because we we publish our statutes in-house, or I should back up and rephrase that. We, we 
write the content and produce the content in-house, and then they're they're published by um, I think it's uh, Lexis Nexus who's the publisher of the statutes. But they just take a one giant PDF of all the texts that our bill drafters have put together, and then they publish it. But Colorado is one of the few states that does actually have annotations to the relevant case law that's tied to that particular statute. So we're actually more advanced than most states. The problem is, if you can see a case, but you can't access the case because you'd need a Westlaw subscription, are you really that much better off if you're reading, say, Title 18, the criminal code, and you're looking at uh, inchoate defenses and you see that there's something about jury instructions and it says that jury instructions concerning conspiracy were interpreted by a case called Young Against the People from 1970. And then you go, oh, 1970s before 1998. I can't access this case unless I physically go to Denver to the state law library or to one of the law school libraries. And so our yeah, keep going, please. uh, Our our bill will change this. It will mean that Mm -hmm. now you can go to the public access uh, case law website. You can type in "People Against Young, 1970." You can now find this opinion, and then you can read how the court interpreted a clause concerning jury instructions regarding inchoate defenses. You know what? I don't think that I've ever talked to somebody about inchoate crimes on <laughs> my decades of broadcasting, but you know what class I taught to the Denver Police Academy? No, which Inchoate crimes. <laughs> How I you can stop that. a crime before it happens, be a hero, save the world, and still have the bad guy go to jail, right? And what are the three inchoate and how would you first define inchoate? Because that's not a word everybody hears every day. We can both spell it I-N-C-H-O-A-T-E. You're the guy who has three law degrees. Where does that word come from, and what does it mean for a layperson? Yeah, so, um, and uh, I probably picked out a word that, uh, you know, I should have thought a little bit more in advance that you'd be asking this question, but uh, I'm definitely uh, certain this comes from from British law, from both English and Scottish law, because I do remember it from from my studies over there. So it's even possible it it comes from the French, because to me it's a um, it, well, what well, looks like a French spelling, and and we actually inherited part part of our legal system from France, believe it or not. I don't know and, where it comes from either, but I I know a good example to illustrate to a layperson what an inchoate please. crime is. Let's hear yours. Um. So it's um, or what? What the word inchoate means? Like, if you have an inchoate cake, what is that? Yeah, so it's. I mean, I guess my. I would use uh, the word incomplete because yes, it's it's like if you have the the cake box, the sugar, the dough, the working oven, the pan, you have all the ingredients for a cake. You have an inchoate cake. First. That's a perfect perfect definition. Well, thank you. And I always told it, it's about the laws of attempt, solicitation, conspiracy, and complicity, all concepts very much in the news. And I found it fascinating because 
It really does give a law enforcement agency the power to stop a crime before it happens and hold the bad guy accountable. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. It is. Well, I'm glad you used that. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, but this is not your only foray into criminal justice matters. I'm a former prosecutor of 16 years. I still do uh, work in the criminal justice system, and you are fascinated by it. And one thing that I have to tell you, in my four decades, does not work well. You know what that is? The what? incarcerating people. I mean, putting people in penitentiaries, they don't come out better, they come out worse, and people just throw up their hands and say, what can we do? What can we do, Representative Soper? What can we do? Yeah, I've thought about this issue a lot, and I have engaged quite a bit in criminal justice reform in my three years in the legislature, and I have been very clear that even when a person is accused of a crime, they're still innocent until proven guilty. And I have worked really diffi- or really hard, I should say, to make sure that our laws reflect that basic notion. But then I've been also very clear in my ideology that once you're found guilty by a jury of your peers, that we need to be tough on crime and that we need to make sure you understand why you're going to prison, that your sentence starts as closely as possible to the commission of the crime so that you know you're being punished for that particular crime. But then we need to focus on the third leg of the stool, which is correction and reentry. So part of correction is we want the perpetrator to admit that they did wrong take and understand they did wrong and take responsibility. Exactly. But most people who go to prison one day are going to be back out with the rest of us. So that tells me we have a duty to make sure that they have all the tools possible to be successful when they reenter society so that they don't reoffend again. And recidivism in Colorado is way, way too high. And you're not uh, so much doing that for them, you're doing that for us. Absolutely. I mean, I um, I want um, former felons to be successful in society, but I also want society not to be victimized any more than they have to. And the way we do this is, I'm going to be on a bill this year with uh, Senator James Coleman. He's a, a Democrat from the Denver area. And What it's going to allow is for inmates to continue a program that we started that was a pilot version where they get to work for companies who are willing to work with Department of Corrections, and they will be paid minimum wage. They can actually drive themselves, believe it or not, from the prison to the job site. They dress like everyone else. Yeah, they wear ankle monitors. I uh, recently, um, with Dean Williams, our head of now wait Department a second. When they drive, do they drive their own vehicles, or are you giving them something to drive? Uh, uh, we're giving them something to drive. Okay. Uh, because they wouldn't most likely have their own vehicles, having been in prison. And I, so, I understand. Are they carpooling? Uh, uh, they are carpooling. Okay, keep going. So, so, so they have to have responsibility, and they're showing responsibility as they leave. They can be trusted. 
they go to work. Um, one of the companies that uh, has been hiring prisoners is a lumber mill in Montrose. And when I toured the facility, I asked the question, who are prisoners and who aren't? And everyone kind of laughed at me and they said, Representative Soper, that's the whole point of bringing you here to show you the program because we're starting to normalize things for these inmates who are within a year of being released and that they're able to earn money and part of this money will go to pay any restitution they still have to pay. But the other half goes into a bank account to allow them to pay for rent when they get out of prison for an apartment, maybe buy a car, buy food, health insurance, all, all of the stability factors that you and I probably have so that they have all the tools possible to be successful on reentry. Because if we let someone out of prison and they don't have a job, they don't have skills, they don't have any money to rent an apartment, you know, now, now they're homeless or living with friends, probably the same friends that helped get them in trouble in the first place. All of a sudden, they're back to their old habits, getting in trouble, committing crime. Now they're back in the criminal justice system. And when they're committing crime, it means there's victims too. So it means people in Colorado have been victimized and the cycle just starts all over again. So if we can cut this off, and I've been working hard to try to find systems to do so, and I'm hoping that this um, uh, Take Two program is what we're calling it, is one of the keys to help reduce our recidivism rate. And do you have any other Republicans on board with you? Not yet, but I'm working on it. Let's talk about some Republicans. They're on my mind. I've always been proudly unaffiliated, for the most part. I mean, when uh, I saw Rick Perry give a speech at the Western Conservative Summit, I was so turned off that I registered as a Republican, I think, to vote for Mitt Romney against him in the Colorado primary. So that was one of my brief forays, but... I'm not one of you guys. I haven't worn that uniform. I've occasionally been a Democrat, and I was thinking that uh, I, I I think you know Representative Liz Cheney is a lot more conservative than I am. But I thought she was smart. She's got a law degree from Chicago. That's pretty good law school. And do you know where she went undergrad? I would guess Yale, but I'm not sure. Close. Colorado College, my alma mater. Uh. And that's where her mama went, too. Her mama, a heck of a historian, and her dad, longtime congressman, and going back to Nixon. He's been working in the federal government, and he was our former vice president. Is she welcoming your version of the Republican Party? She, she is. Uh, I mean, in my version of the Republican Party, it's a big tent, and we have Factions of the ideology that represent what it means to be Republican, but the basic tenets remain the same. And I believe, you know, you know, everyone from, you know, the Cheneys to even Jim Jordan, I think, illustrate why it is that that, that we're part of the same party. It's it's limited government, lower taxes, a focus on the key elements of government for for, for why government exists, such as security, defense, transportation. 
where we uh, start to divide as a as a house um, or as a family, I should say, is when we get way down into the weeds. And that's why President Ronald Reagan said, my uh, 80% friend is not my foe. He's not my 20% enemy. And I think it's really important to remember that, that when you agree with someone at least 80% of the time, you don't make them your enemy. But that's where the Republican Party right now, we've definitely got to be able to kind of clean things up in-house a little bit more. Well, it's all about the big lie now. Isn't that the litmus test? Which side are you on? Liz Cheney says, I can't go with the big lie. It led to January 6th, and you and I have already talked about that a little. That was, to me, one of the biggest crimes I've ever witnessed, but it wasn't just one part of the plan. There was a plan to use the DOD and the DOJ and Homeland Security to seize Dominion voting machines growing out of a big lie out of Colorado. And then there were fake elector certificates. And you went to three law schools. You know that sort of stuff ain't right. No, and it's it's definitely torn the party apart. I mean, you've you 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 can look at survey results. I, I know NPR did a series of surveys from last January 6th until this January 6th of the Republican Party. And what they have found is it's uh, uh, Dominion and election integrity and the voting systems have divided the party 50-50, and it's been a consistent polling over the last year, right at the 50-50 mark. And at some point in time, we need to look to the future, not to the past, and be able to say, okay, maybe we do have a system in the future where to reassure people that we do have a safe and secure election system, that we do build in you know, a stronger system of uh, checks. I know that in 2016, the Democrats weren't happy. 2020, a lot of Republicans weren't happy, it seemed like. And that to me says we have two official vendors in Colorado, their competitors, uh, Dominion and Clear Ballot. Why not run ballots through both machines and see if you get the same results? And there's several counties in Colorado that have done that. Mesa County, for example, although they were kind of forced to do it, but um, they had good results in the school board elections from 2021. They ran ballots through Dominion clear ballot. They did a hand recount and they scanned every ballot and put it online so that citizens could do their own recount if they wanted to. And, well, oh, and, and, and you a, represent Delta and Mesa County. Any other counties correct. in there? Nope, just Delta and Mesa County. And where are your constituents on these issues? The one thing that I was startled by when I got to your part of the world was the beauty and the fact that Delta is an undiscovered gem, and I bet a lot of people are saying, I can work as a patent lawyer from there, and I don't have to live in Denver like your wife. That's wonderful. But I was also sort of stunned by the Trump signs because it was many months after the election, and we're just not traditionally that kind of a society where political signs stay up that long after an election. 
That's true. Uh, Delta and Mesa counties are definitely Trump country. Uh, Donald Trump um, was definitely well-liked uh, throughout uh, the two counties and, and actually throughout throughout the Western Slope or, or rural Colorado as well. We love it. He, he is. Um, and, and people say different things about um, President Trump. I mean, I hear things like, I loved his policies. I couldn't stand his tweets. I have had other constituents say things like, uh, I love how he said exactly what I think. And, and constituents, you know, I found have really loved President Trump and uh, in the Trump presidency. So this is what I infer, Matt. So first of all, you've been so generous. We've gone an hour, 20 minutes. I could talk to you forever. You're so darn bright. We talked off air too. And I don't want to get you in trouble with your constituents, but I trust you to be a straight shooter as January 6th committee unfurls its results. I think you will objectively analyze what happened. And when the time is right, I may ask you some pointed questions, but not today, because I think you're one of the good guys. I can see it just by this conversation and the fact that your actions speak louder than words. You work with the Democrats. You're looking to help the people of Colorado, and I'm proud to get to know you. Well, thank you. Well, it's been an honor to get to know you as well, and I've always been uh, very passionate about uh, public service and being able to represent rural western Colorado. That is so cool. Thank you, Matt. Oh, thank you, Craig. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm, Bye. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael.
Hey, did I tell you you would like Matt Soper? The way he describes that library, I'm writing about law libraries for the Colorado Sun. Check that out on Monday or Tuesday. Um, Whenever you have the time to take a look, I've got to scratch out that column. I want to make a contribution by talking about current events and this really dangerous time in which we live. Our democracy is under threat insofar as Ukraine. I didn't talk about that, but I have a feeling that Putin and Trump, they are connected. And uh, as the law closes in on Donald Trump, expect fellow mobster Vlad Putin to take some actions that are really bad for this civilized world. Wow, these are perilous times where we've got each other. And thanks for listening. Tell a friend. And you know, on Apple Podcasts, it's neat. You've got to go to the uh, episode site and then scroll down. Please give us five stars. Great reviews really matter because feedback keeps us going. And camaraderie keeps us going. And if that's a communist word, so be it. At least we're not Nazis, right? I'm against those Nazis. I'm not for communists either. Can we get back to normal in America and Colorado? That's my wish. Shabbat Shalom. And thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.